seated. Turn with me to the Older Testament, the last book of that testament, Malachi. Today we have come to chapter 3, in actuality, verse 17 of chapter 2, which is the last verse of chapter 2. Try to ignore the verse numbers and chapters here. They don't serve us well. They're not part of the inspired text. They're there to help us find it in our Bibles, and that's important. But sometimes it gives us the impression that there are different thoughts. And uh, you will see this morning that is not the case, that this is uh, really one a unified thought, verse two, uh, 17 of chapter 2 down to verse 6 of chapter 3, and that is what we will be looking at today. Now, the book of Malachi begins uh, where we must begin in order to understand God's word, any of God's word. It says at the beginning in verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. Now, yes, it is an indictment of his people. The rest of the book outlines the various ways in which they have strayed from him. We see their lukewarm hearts towards him without question. But verse 2 is the bedrock. It's the foundation for us to understand God's word. It would be very depressing, if not oppressive, to read the word and constantly be reminded of our sin without that backdrop of God's sure love for us. And that is the backdrop of Malachi. Uh, His sure love, you remember the acronym, sure, his sovereign love, his unconditional love, his redemptive love, his elective love, his sure love. It's not just human love. It's his purposed love. It's placed on you by his choice. And that drives all his activity, his actions to discipline us, to refine us, to bless us. Those things are in conjunction with his commitment to love us. And that's the backdrop. Now, to this point, we have seen several ways in which corruption has seeped into the people of God. They were revived when they were brought back to the land, but then their leadership began to fail. Their leadership was not directing the people as they ought to. They're bringing uh, lame sacrifices, and the leadership was allowing it. And the corruption, the leadership began to multiply itself in the people. And there were unbiblical divorces happening in this community. There was uh, husbands leaving their wives. There were situations where people were mistreating one another just interpersonally. They were looking out for number one instead of themselves. None of it really went to show the character of God. His people were not reflecting the character of God very well at all. Then we come to really what I would say is a crescendo this morning where God lays out this indictment against his people saying that they have in fact wearied him by their attitudes. And we will see this crescendo typify itself in their statement that God is not just. They would actually take the one who is truth and call him a liar. That's what they do. It's reached this point. They have forgotten his love. It has led them into sin. They persist in sin. And then when confronted, they say, wait a minute. God, what have you done for me lately, is what they say. Now, before we just consider this technically and read the text, I want you to think personally for a moment. Are you questioning God's goodness this morning? All of us have moments where we do. Are you this morning questioning God's goodness? Has a situation in your life caused you to question the justice of God? Is your Sunday smile on your face this morning, but is your your heart hard against God this morning? Will you with me at least admit this before we begin this morning? Because if you're in that state, it's very difficult for the seed of the Word of God to fall on a hard surface and grow. So at least concede with me this morning. I will concede with you as well that we are a fickle people who are prone to misunderstand and misinterpret life. Can we admit that together before we even look at God's Word? Can we confess that together? Can you admit that we are inconsistent, vacillating, erratic, moody, changeable people? Can we admit that? Because when we start there, 
then we can better understand something of the one who does not change. We're the ones who change. We're the ones who are erratic. We're the ones who vacillate, not our God. And we have to start there. Confess that first for us to have the word of God have its effect on our lives. So here now, God's word, Malachi 2, verse 17, down to verse 6 of chapter 3. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. As in the days of old, as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Let us pray. Father, there is no shadow of turning in you. And as a vacillating, erratic, moody human being, it's difficult for me to see this. But Lord, I, we need to see this once again this morning, for it is the very bedrock of our salvation, that you, the Lord our God, do not change. We thank you for this. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Malachi 1, verse 2, as I alluded to earlier, is the bedrock of the entire book. The Lord declares his sure love for his people. I have loved you, says the Lord. But Malachi 3, 6 has to be the passionate reaffirmation of the love of God in the face of an ungrateful people. It's like a father telling himself, son, I'm going to kill you right now, but because you're my son, I won't. Now, maybe you fathers haven't gotten to that point, but I was there with my father several times where he probably should have. And you know what I mean by kill me. He, whatever you want to say about that, whoop me, whatever it would be. But because I was his son, he held back. Because of who I was to him, he held back. At a human level, I can sort of understand what appears to be frustration. You have wearied me, the Lord says, but because of who I am, because of the fact that I don't change, because I have placed my love on you from eternity, you will not be consumed, but you will go through discipline. You will experience refinement. You will experience trials in order to bring you back to understanding who you are, my children. That is the essence of what we have. It's a reaffirmation of Malachi 1-2. For, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, my people, my children, you are not consumed. Really, today's passage has judgment in it for sure, but it again is rooted in God's grace for his people. We see it throughout. 
And we see the attitude represented by Israel, our Old Testament counterparts, is very similar to what ours is today. We've learned how to say it in such a way uh, to sound spiritual or make sure we don't go against God's love and justice, but in our hearts we're questioning it. Uh, we struggle with it. And God speaks to us through his word in this way. If you think about it, of all the attributes of God, we love to talk about his love, his grace, his mercy, his sovereignty. All these things are wonderful. They give me great strength. But can we see that without the immutability of God, this word meaning he doesn't change, without that, what good is his love? If he could change his love, how secure would you be in it? If he could change his grace, how, would, how secure would you be in it? But the fact that he does not change gives us the security in these other attributes that we accent so often. It's his immutability that really gives us the strength, the knowledge of our salvation, that it's sure, while everything else changes, including myself, his love, his person, does not. God stays the same. Now, I want you to think as we look at this passage together for a few things that strike close to home. Think of all the things that change in this life and cause us unrest. You know, different language is used. I'm anxious about this, or I'm worried about this, or this concerns me. I'm stressed about this. But I would like to break it down to simply saying that those things that give us fear, an ungodly fear, a sinful fear, are usually rooted to things that change or that we think will change, and it gives us a lack of security. And think of all the things in your life that are like this. First of all, change in people and our relationships with them. This is a huge driving force in people's lives. Will my husband continue to be faithful to me? Will my wife continue to love me? Uh, what will happen with my spouse? Uh, it might change, you might think. And this gives us stress. It gives us unrest. Our children, will they walk with the Lord? Will they be wayward? Will they do this? Will they choose someone to marry that is godly? Will they, will they, will they? All the things you may be stressed about regarding your child. How about friends? People that you think are your friends and you find out they're not or there's some change that happens. They vacillate or they fluctuate in their devotion to you. And it causes us deep unrest in our lives. Coworkers, ones that you work with that one minute are giving you great reviews, the next moment they're not. And all the things that fall out from those kinds of situations and those relationships we have with people in business. Change in people and our relationships with them cause us great unrest. We consider them often. How about when tragedy takes one we love? All of us, I say when, not if, all of us will experience this at some point. It's a change. And that person is no longer there. Or that person isn't the same. They don't stay the same. The security of today is an illusion when you consider the rapidly fluctuating nature of human relationships. But not just human relationships. How about something like change in our financial security that is so important to Americans. Our job, it could change. Some of you live six months to six months wondering what your employer will do next. Will they renew the contract or not? Uh, or move you here or there? Or give you this option or that option? And change is always in your, in your face. You're always having to consider what would change be like based on your vocation, your job, what you're doing. How about the stock market? I've talked to several people. Unfortunately, I'm not nowhere near the place where it bothers me that much. But I know it bothers some. And I was talking to someone. I was on a plane ride from Atlanta and met the real estate agent who sold, uh, sold myself, Pastor Nathan, and actually some people here at their house. And uh, as I was sitting with him on the plane, they're not believers, and he said his wife was very, very stressed about the fact that they had lost so much in the stock market. They lost half of what they'd saved for. They're in their 
uh, mid-50s, and they're looking forward to retirement. And now they're, they remember them both saying they're going to have to work five more years to make up what was lost. And I can think of other people. I remember watching this process go on in the last seven or eight years. And really, it revealed how much security we have in such a thing. And it changes so much, and there's so many variables that we cannot control. Yet that change causes us great unrest. How about extraordinary events that happen? Uh, someone sues you, uh, maybe out of your control. In today's legal environment, someone may sue you or something may happen like this. Health problems come in that cause financial uh, insecurity. No way to pay for this or that health problem. Material loss, uh, something can happen where you lose something of great value. These changes in our quote-unquote financial security really can cause us unrest. But the security of today is an illusion when we consider the many variables that can affect us in this arena. Change in people and our relationships with them. Change in our financial security. But also, how about change in our physical well-being? These other two are somewhat, uh, you have some input in them, but there's one that really is difficult to control. That is your health. Uh, they say it's genetics. They say it's this. They say it's that. But all of us at some point are going to start to fail. In fact, we are failing uh, when you hit a certain age. I'm not sure what exactly that age is. Some of us, it's earlier than others. But the failure starts. It's inevitable. It's part of living in broken, sin-torn bodies. Our souls redeemed, yes, but our bodies will not be renewed until that great and glorious day. An accident can happen that can change your physical well-being. Sickness can come in. Violence can happen to us. We see it in the day we live. All these things are changed. They're variables. They fluctuate. In all of them, initially, we have a security in today, but it's an illusion. We consider the uncertainty of something like our physical well-being. The key words that I've just mentioned in some, in some areas that I think resonate with all of us, fluctuation, variable, change, uncertainty, those are words that we associate with our circumstances. And even for believers, they can have the effect of consuming our minds to the point where we forget something so vitally important that is the immutable nature of our God. This is not just an esoteric theology. This is not just an esoteric doctrinal study. This goes to the heart of your security. That is the nature of God because it's the only thing you can know for sure. You don't know if your husband's going to love you tomorrow. You don't know if your devotion will be what it will be to your children, to your family, what your job will do, all these things. You don't know that. But you can know the immutable nature of your God, and then that has an effect on all these other areas, as we will see. Spurgeon said it well. There is one place where change cannot put his finger. There is one name on which mutability can never be written. There is one heart which can never alter. That heart is God's. That name is love. The immutable one is the one who drives any amount of devotion in any of us. For me to keep my vow to my wife, it's based on God's immutability and his work in me. It's not based on me. Let's look at the passage together and see how this unfolds. Because there's really much in this passage, much more than we could cover in one morning. But let's look together at verse 17, where we have the people of God questioning God's justice. They have received discipline from God. That is really the essence of the book. The book is written after a time of discipline has come to the wayward children of God. And they are uh, fed up with God. They are living lackluster, lukewarm lives. And so God tells them the reason for the discipline that has occurred and future discipline that will happen. But look at verse 17 where we have the really the basic problem. The prophet says, on behalf of the Lord, you have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how are we wearying them? In other words, wait a minute, wait a minute. How can you say that? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. 
and he delights in them. In other words, the people of God were kicking back and looking at everyone else doing really well in the world. How come they're all prospering? How come the wicked prosper, they may be saying? Or by asking, point blank, where is the God of justice? Look at what the pagans do. Look at what the heathens are doing. He does nothing about it. And look what he's doing to us. He's making life hard for us. So they declare God to be an unjust God in that they combined their opinion with that of Zorba the Greek who said, life is trouble. And how many people remember double, double toil and trouble? Fire burn and cauldron bubble. Shakespeare and Macbeth. This attitude that life stinks and it's God's fault. The people on Malachi's day had grown so out of touch with God's grace that they came to a point of openly and shamelessly blaming God for their toil. Why should we serve God? It just doesn't pay is what they're saying. It doesn't pay. We get nothing out of it. Really caused me, in verse 17, to think of a situation I'd kind of mediated several years ago before I came here in the church that I served as a youth leader in before this. There was a situation where the parent, there was a set of parents and a teenage girl that were having a huge quarrel. And what had basically happened, from my observation, just seeing it from the outside, and I'd just gotten there and uh, inherited this situation, and what happened was is the... The daughter, from my perspective, was given just all sorts of privileges, and her parents were very, very good at loosening some of the restrictions and giving her more and more freedoms as she got towards her senior year. I mean, she had a car that was provided by, uh, by her parents. Uh, there were several things that were provided to her that she, I, I guess, took for granted, did not understand that there was no right or privilege, or there's no right attached to these things. And so she had this, uh, really, what I would say, a really good life. Her parents were doing the best they could to disciple her and bring her uh, up in the way that honored God, and at the same time giving her many freedoms that she could have and enjoy. Well, there are a few ways in which she broke household rules. Not huge ways, but ways enough for the, uh, the father, in this case, to restrict her use of the car. She was only allowed to take it back and forth to school and back and forth to work for a month. She wasn't allowed to go out with her friends during that month. And her reaction is she just blew up. And she literally moved out and moved out to a friend's house and stayed with her friend. And I was called in to go talk to her about this and then talk to the parents and try to bring this situation together. And I remember talking to parents, and it's their brokenness. What have we done wrong? What have we, and all these, these different feelings they were going through. And then I went to the, the, the girl, and my words to her were, your, your parents' hearts are broken. And she said, their hearts are broken. What about me? Now, I hope you sense a little bit of what I sensed. I'm thinking, you got it so good. For one month, you can't go out in the evenings with the car they provided for you, and you're shaking your fist at them and saying that they broke in your heart. And this, my brothers and sisters, is the people of God, when they say to God, how have we wearied you? How have we wearied you? Where is the God of justice? When we see all that God has done for them. And I would submit to you, it's no different than when we say, God, this is not fair. Is your soul not saved? Just to start. How can we say, God, you are not fair? This is for all of us who grow angry with God at times. It is not okay to be angry with God. It's not okay to endorse it in any way, shape, or form. It's not all right to be angry with him. To cry out frustration, that's one thing. The psalmist did it. But to be angry with God is saying, you are not just. How could you say that I've wearied you, God? Consider why you're undergoing trials rather than think of them as God's injustice. There's a purpose. There's a reason. We can't always particularly understand it, but know that there's a refinement going on in your life if you're united to Christ. That's part of your walk, that he will bring things into your life to refine you. And they're usually in the areas 
that you'd wish you'd leave alone because they're your weakness. They're your pet sin. They're the thing that you want to hold on to. God, you can have all my life, but please leave this alone. And he loves you so much that he won't do that. And he brings refinement in different ways. And instead of looking at those trials or those things that come in as God's injustice, see it as his unchanging love and commitment for you. While you may want to run away from God, he does not change in his love for you, and he won't let you. He just won't let you because he loves you far too much for that. And he knows the agony you will bring to yourself if you continue on that road. Well, let's look at what God's response is in verses 1 through 5. Because this is his response, and this is an amazing response because it's bigger than just their situation, but it goes to the heart of his justice, the heart of his judgment. God loves us so much, but he is not a lackey or a pushover or a patsy, a softy. This is not our God. He will not be mocked by any person. Even we, his people, need to hear this. Look at verses 1 through 5, starting at verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now remember, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, so there will be a silence and prophetic voice until this messenger comes. Isaiah speaks of him as well, and you know him as John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So here we have a prophecy of John the Baptist coming, to prepare the way in the way of the eastern kings who would send someone ahead to prepare people, and he prepared them by preaching repentance. you got to turn, he says to the people. John the Baptist, this is a prophecy of him. Isaiah speaks of it as well. Then he will send forth his son, who is the messenger of the covenant. He only uses this term uh, uniquely with his son. Uh, the covenant, he is the bearer, he is the redeemer, he is the, the guarantee of the covenant. And he'll send forth his son, himself so god himself will now come it's clear that the hearts of the people will not change as it is so i will send my son and he will bring justice to the situation isaiah interestingly when he forecasts john the baptist speaks more in terms of john the baptist preparing the way for the savior whereas in this case malachi is talking about john the baptist preparing the way of the judge so jesus comes as savior and judge in this these, this twofold attribute of God is throughout this passage as well as the whole Old Testament and into the New. In his entrance, Jesus' entrance into the Jewish temple will be the mark of his arrival. Now, scholars argue about what could possibly be the nature of his coming into the temple. My perspective is that this refers to Jesus early in his ministry going into the temple immediately, not just his presentation at the temple when he was born, that was more meek, but when he actually enters the temple in the first time he overturns the tables. I think he did this multiple times. In fact, I would argue probably every time he got near the temple, he probably overturned the tables. But this first time, early in his ministry, to announce to the sons of Levi, those who were the priests, I am here. The light is showing. Darkness will be exposed. You cannot continue to hide your corrupt ways, for I am here. And they knew it. They knew he was there. And so he came. This is prophesied in Malachi. This will happen some 400 years after this prophecy, but it will come, God says. Look at verse 2. Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. When Jesus comes, he will shed light on the darkness. He will expose. It will start with his coming, but it will carry on throughout the life of his church on earth and then his final coming. It's all one event, I believe, in the eyes of this prophet. His presence will expose all that is false. The false and empty religion is there. will be shown for what it is when he comes. And it continues to be shown as his church is faithful to show it. And it will ultimately be shown when he comes again in glory. 
Notice the two allegories or the two analogies here, refiner's fire and fuller's soap. A refiner's fire is not like someone who has a flamethrower, who's trying to consume whatever he hits. A refiner's fire is very careful. He sits down and works with precious metal, something that's important to him, or, and, and then he works it into the flame so that the dross is burned out. It's not, des- it's not destroyed. It's just the, the bad stuff's taken out. That's a much different approach than the flamethrower approach you and I might have where we got and our people rebelled. He refines. So he comes as one who is flames, yes, but he also comes to refine. And a fuller's soap, a fuller is one who works with clothes. And in those days, there wasn't the wardrobe, uh, uh, didn't have the wardrobes like we did. Their, their colors were very, uh, usually they were white or an off-white because there weren't a lot in the way of dyes for most people to have. Dyes were expensive. So this meant that you're washing a lot. If you think, I, I watch my wife oftentimes, in fact, Thursday, I put a white shirt on one of my sons. Why did I do that? I had no idea. I just grabbed it out of the drawer. She came home. I could see her to shake her head when she saw the red Kool-Aid stains, uh, the Pop-Tart stains, and everything else on the shirt. She said, why did you put them in white? And then I watched her for 20 minutes, scrubbing out the red spots at the sink. That's what a fuller did. A fuller took the garments and scrubbed out the spots that were there. And they used a powerful soap, a soap that was so powerful that you would walk by the fuller's place and you would know that smell, kind of like the dry cleaning fluid, if you've ever heard, smelled that. That dry cleaning fluid, it's the most powerful stuff they had. It was industrial strength. And like the fuller's soap, Jesus is going to come to take out those spots from his people, from this world, in fact. So we have this wonderful analogy. But look at verse 3. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, continuing this picture. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. So he's going to start with the leadership. Remember, Malachi addresses this, uh, for uh, devotes a lot of what he says to the leadership. So he's going to start there. And, he, and Jesus literally goes to the temple. And we tend to think of all those who were unfaithful. But did you know that the majority of the early elders in the Christian church were, were converted Jewish leaders? So we dwell on the unfaithful Jews that led to the crucifixion of Jesus. But don't miss that there were many who turned to him. There were many like Simeon who said, I have seen the promise of the Lord fulfilled. Jesus has come. And much of the early church comes, leadership comes from the Jewish believers that were there. So there's a sense in which he's going to turn their hearts. And this doesn't just apply to this period of time when he comes, but it's working itself out now and it will ultimately till his final coming. Eventually, there will be a restoration of godly leadership in the church, and I think it's happening. I think the Lord is moving in this way. Now, when you consider Old Testament prophecy, because there's so much of it that seems so veiled, and yet today's writers, you'll read and you'll go to bookstores, and you'll see book after book after book giving you exactly what everything means. I would rather challenge us to think more normally about this. In other words, what does the prophet have in mind when he is writing? And in his case, he sees the coming of the Lord Jesus as one event. One event that has different stages, perhaps, but one event. In fact, my position would be that he sees the initial coming of Jesus as one event that is the inauguration of his presence. And then as he ascends and sits at the right hand of the Father, there's this other fulfillment of his kingdom that is, again, on an ascending order. That is, his church now is having the effect of his body on earth. As the church grows and has its effect and has a transformational influence over the earth, it ascends in in that development. But finally and ultimately, the ultimate purification, the refining, will come when he comes back. So there's this ascending 
progress in the church that seems to be there in the Old Testament saints, especially when they, prof- they prophesy Jesus is coming. This prophecy of him coming, judgment occurring, and then people turning to him. Now, there's all sorts of debate of how this happens in order. But see God's kingdom as a victorious kingdom, at least. That his dominion does have its play. And that's what the Lord does in prophesying his son who will come and will turn this around. The situation that's happening in Malachi's day, he's going to turn that around with the presence of his son, both literally and in the hearts of his people as the church moves forward, empowering the church while he sits at God's right hand, and finally his coming. But look at verse 4. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and in former years. Some have used this to say that there will be a reinstitution of the sacrificial system. Clearly, based on Hebrews, this cannot be the case. But rather, it's figuratively looking at the fact that all of our offerings to God will be clothed, will be, will be covered in the blood of Christ so that our offerings will once again be acceptable. And they were acceptable in different times in Israel's life when they weren't looking to the sacrifice itself but to what it forecasted for their redemption, for their security. And there will be that day, and that day will develop, where we'll look to Christ's perfect sacrifice and all the offerings we give to the Lord and praise in our lives and so forth will be done clothed in the blood of Christ. Look at verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers. So after this heart change occurs, after this victory of his son over the hearts of people, then I will be swift, a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppose the hired workers and his wages, the widows and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And there in verse 5, you have really a sum total of the Ten Commandments. Those who will make other gods before me or make graven images. Those who will lie to one another, commit adultery against one another. Who will covet one another's things and take them. I will judge those actions, those activities. I will go after those things. And look at how he looks upon something like oppressing people. Uh, The widow and the fatherless, how near and dear they are to God. And I will make those situations right. I will turn justice. God's reaction to people saying that he is not just, I will send Christ, is what he says in verses 1 through 5. This is my answer. I will send Christ. He will restore justice. He will restore my order. So he's prophesying the ultimate answer to the problem they're facing, the one we still need, the answer we still need, that is Christ. So we have here judgment and grace in these five verses. Messiah will come with refiner's fire, not a furnace fire that will consume, but one that will actually purify. He will restore communion with God, and the godless will not stand in the face of this activity. There won't won't be no rest for the wicked in this. This comes to verse 6. Verse 6, look with me. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Another reference, not consumed to the refining nature of God's fire. I do not change you. You are not consumed. What? Why is this so important that God does not change? Let me make it very personal. Personal to myself. Tony, you have sinned and scorned me this day or this week. I will bring discipline to refine you, God says to me. But you will not be consumed because of my sure love for you. I am a sinner who fails continually, and so are you. And what gives me great security and what gives me victory over those sins the next time is knowing that God does not cast me off every time I fail. Unlike people, unlike other situations, God does not wait for my performance to meet his standard so that he will then accept me. But rather because he loves his son and his commitment to his son is unchanging, his commitment to me then is unchanging. 
And don't misunderstand me. I don't use this as a license for sin. In fact, that would show I don't understand it at all if I use it for a license for sin. I'm just going to do what I'm going to do because God's going to forgive me. That shows a heart that is not bent towards God, that has not been saved. But one who sins like you do and I do and realizes what God has done for me and then is compelled to change, to see change happen with the aid of the Holy Spirit, this is the proper reaction to God's unchanging love. And it is the very motivation for why we are able to turn from our sin. It's understanding God's unchanging nature and wanting to please the Father who loves us. A reaction to his love is our obedience. What sin are you holding on to today? What sin is it? Is God bringing conviction to your life? Is he exercising discipline? Is he doing, I can tell you this, he's doing so with the intent of refining you, not breaking you. He's not trying to consume you, he's trying to refine you. Stop fighting it, is what I'm saying. Repent, is what he's saying. Change. God will not stop working on you. He will not stop pursuing you. Would you stop pursuing your child if they were wayward? No. You may change your tactic, but you would never, they would never leave your mind and heart. You would always, till your dying day, care about their well-being. Well, your God cares the same way about you, and he's not going to leave you the same way you are today. He's going to keep pursuing you with his love, which means his justice too, and it means his refining fire. Praise God that he has not changed in his love for us, and he continues to work on us. Fear not of all these, for all these things, because we consider the one who does not change. What is God? Our confession says it better than any human document has ever written. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, and unchangeable in his being, his wisdom, his power, his holiness, his justice, his goodness, and his truth. That's a mouthful. He's unchanging in all these things. I am changing in my wisdom, in my power, my holiness, my justice, goodness, truth, and so are you, but he is not. He is not changing. Consider how he does not change in easier terms. His essence doesn't change. He's a spirit. He's infinite. He's unchangeable. Those things never stop. John says he is a spirit. He's everywhere present. You can't go anywhere outside of his. I remember as a child, I used to hide under a stage that was in this church that I used to go to. And I thought if I was under that stage, God could not see me. He wasn't there. But he's there. He's everywhere. If you go to the highest heaven, he's there. The deepest pit, and he's there. He's infinite. That is, in Job 11, can you search out the deep things of God? He's so much deeper than I am. Unchangeable. Not only in this text, but in Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting, that's as far back as you can go, to everlasting, you are God. His essence never changes. His personality doesn't change. Mine changes. It has changed over the years, and for the better, I might add, I hope. I always tell my wife, you never would have married me if you would have met me in high school. Thank God, he changes us. But we go back and forth. We vacillate. We're erratic. But he doesn't change. His attributes never change. His plans don't change. Have you thought of this? There's no such thing as plan B with God. He doesn't say, oh, this didn't work, so let's just go this way. In fact, there's a heresy out there. It's called the openness of God theology, this idea that God is somehow waiting for his creation to do thus and so, and then he'll move accordingly. That's not God. Or who could give a thought or who could give a, a provocation to God? That person would be God. So his plans don't change. They're in motion. I don't understand them all the time. He doesn't give me full view of them, but he's not at all worried about where things are going because he's controlling those. He's moving whatsoever comes to pass. His plans don't change. That means his plan of redemption has never, never changed or been thwarted. Even the worst moment when it looked like he was defeated, it was actually the pinnacle moment of his victory, Christ on the cross. Ultimately, there are no mistakes in history. 
I don't understand all the things in history. I call things tragedies, and they are, humanly speaking, but in the greater scheme, there's no mistake that occurs in history. I hear people say all the time, lamenting the past. And I understand there are past sins or past choices we make that continue to affect us. But get over the fact that it's a mistake. It's done with now. If you claim the blood of Christ in that situation, do you understand that all these things work together? It's part of the plan. And do you look forward, like Paul, forgetting what lays past and looking on, pressing on to the upward calling that is in Christ Jesus? His plans don't change. His promises don't change. His promise never to leave or forsake us never changes. When people leave and forsake us, he does not. When a job lets us go or this or that situation affronts us, when our health, when we get that report from the doctor, he does not stop loving us and caring for us. His love does not change. His love for us was and continues to be his sovereign, unchanging choice. The way you know, well, you say, Tony, how do I know I'm loved? Conviction, if you're convicted this moment for your sin, I would submit to you that only the Holy Spirit could provide that kind of conviction because your humanity would not drum up any amount of guilt or conviction over your sin. It's God opening your eyes to the depth of your wickedness, of your misery, your sinful estate, and the vastness of his righteousness and love and how he bridges those. Why is the immutability of God so important? I hope you've seen it's the bedrock of our lives. When you experience a change in someone's love for you, a spouse, a child, a friend, You are loved by the one who does not change. When you experience a loss of physical security, you lose your job, you lose your home, you lose your worldly status, you lose your stock portfolio, you lose your car, your boat, your whatever. You haven't lost the promise of God that does not change to supply for all your needs. When your health begins to fail, and I said when, not if. When those you love experience the failure of their health, When tragedy strikes, violence affronts, or you get that call telling you someone near and dear to you has been injured or killed, or someone other variable that will happen in your life, we are drawn to the reality that the one that does not change will provide grace sufficient today and a future grace that includes provision for all these earthly toils and an escape from it eventually. We can count on this future grace because of the immutable character of the one who provides it. Everything changes, right? Except God. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your understanding.